Okay, you ready to play a little game? Hmm? Okay, good. Here we go. Three of these kids belong together. Three of these kids are kind of the same. But one of these kids is doing his own thing. Now it's time to play our game. It's time to play our game. It is indeed time to play our game. What are these three kids and who's the other? Yeah, we've got three Purple Powers, national champions, you know, three of the great programs in Division Three, and Johns Hopkins. So this should be a uh, a fun quarterfinal round because I actually think the Blue Jays are, are going to surprise some folks. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. We're down to four teams remaining as we welcome you to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, episode number 229. Two national semifinals, or as I like to think of it, one of the two days per season where I can watch every minute of every game. I'm Pat Coleman of D3Football.com, and it's time to welcome in Keith McMillan. Glad to be back for another, for 229. 229. You are here. You are welcome. And thanks to ESPN this week, we have a noon kickoff for Johns Hopkins and Mount Union. And we have a 3.30 Eastern time kickoff for UW-Whitewater at Mary Hardin-Baylor. It doesn't get any better than that to me, Keith. Some years I've been at home watching both. Some years they've been on simultaneously. But my favorite way to do this is basically to watch the early game online and watch the late game in person. And that usually works out pretty well. Some years that's been at St. Thomas. Some years at UW-Oshkosh. I think this might be the first time that I'm actually traveling to the semifinal at Mary Hardin-Baylor. Well, it won't be the first time UW-Whitewater travels down to Mary Hardin-Baylor for a semifinal game. And Pat, I think probably the uh, the, the best semifinal year was uh, probably two, 2016, where not only the games were staggered, but they both came down to the final minutes between Oshkosh and John Carroll and then Mountain Union at UMHB. This year, we should be that lucky, or at least I hope we are, as I think we have one game that shapes up as a for the ages barn burner and another that might surprise us and be less like the three playoff games Mountain Union has played so far this season and more like one of those old Wesley Mountain Union shootouts. Johns Hopkins has some weapons, and many of the key players have faced Mountain Union before and won't be intimidated. In the 2016 second round, the Purple Raiders won 28-21 in Baltimore. So while I still think St. John should somehow be alive in this postseason, we've got what we got, and it should be a thrill ride. I loved that 2016. Oshkosh John Carroll was the early game, and I listened to as much Mountain Union Mary Harden Baylor as I could while driving back home. I could not watch ESPN3 in the car, obviously, but that was one of the days where... Uh, you know, the TuneIn app on my uh, on my phone saved me, and it's done that many times since. It's uh, been a great way to get uh, get some of these, you know, small-town radio stations that uh, that carry the Division Three football games. Yeah, I remember being in the Mary Hardin-Baylor press box at the Cathedral, stuffing my face with brisket, and everybody, uh, as Mount Union and Mary Hardin-Baylor are warming up on the field, everybody in the press box has turned toward this one TV watching the last, I believe it was a John Carroll drive that uh, that that Oshkosh stopped, and that was a 10-3 game. That was the year where defense was was super prominent in the uh, in the championship game. And as we get to to the semifinal and and stag bowl round this year, you know it's hard to tell whether defense will be what carries the day or whether uh, offense is because I think all four teams have high powered offense, and then I think you have really at least three great defenses still alive in Mary Harden, Baylor, Whitewater, and Mountain Union. And not only are they, are they good defenses statistically and against the run, but they've been generating turnovers. All, all three of them, really all, all four uh, defenses over the course of, of the postseason, although John, Johns Hopkins didn't have any turnovers this week. But the, the way that Mountain Union, Mary Harden, Baylor, Whitewater have advanced is not just with this high-powered offense or having great quarterback play, but generating those turnovers and being smothering on defense. I think you would be impressed with my speed. You know, Keith, I know you said some things there, but I didn't hear anything you said after brisket. Mary Harden Baylor has gone from this uh, kind of situation where they get a lead and they kind of take the air out of the offense to now, you know, this past weekend, for example, they did that for a little bit, right? They were up by two scores and maybe they played a little bit conservatively. Uh, but this year, you know, with Jace Hammock under center, they have the opportunity and the ability to, when they turn it back on, like turn it way back on. The crew offense hasn't been able to go from like zero to 60 now, maybe like zero to 80 the way that they did on Saturday. It's been more like, you know, zero to 45 
or something like that. It was really interesting to watch just how everything kind of flipped back on. And I'm thinking about when uh, TJ Josie caught that 51-yard touchdown pass. And here's Josie and then uh, Coach Pete Fredenberg talking about the game on Saturday. Uh, I think we needed that. Uh, I mean, we've been we've been having some fun, scoring a lot of points, but I don't. We haven't been tested the way they tested us today, and uh, to see the way we responded and uh, the, the plays we made to to push us to that victory, I think it was really good and it helped us grow a lot. Well, it was ironic that we talked uh, in uh, last week on Sunday about our special teams and uh, just how critical it was for everybody to do their assignments and. Um, and, and because I, I reminded them of the 2004 blocked punt and the stag ball that cost us the bogging. And it's a, it's a, I think, uh, hello, guys, this, this is what, uh, what happens when you don't. And that's a, that's a wake up call for all of us. Um, and then the thing that I think is that we will grow uh, immensely for the tight game. You know, we, the, we got conservative when we needed to be, and, and, but we need to be able to move the ball running. Um, we got some work to do, but uh, we, we'll get it done. We got conservative when we needed to. It, it's right there. He said it right there. Yeah, it's sort of classic Mary Harden Baylor. But I, I thought, Pat, the takeaway from this, besides um, that Mary Harden Baylor got the push, the, the test that it expected, and that it, it survived. And uh, you know, to, to out in a season when they've won ninety-one-seven and seventy-five-nine, even in a postseason game, to have a three-point game where they needed to intercept a, a pass, really needed to stop multiple drives at the end of the game, uh, I, I thought was was big for them. But the takeaway for me is that that game, two verse three in, in the poll, lived up to the hype, and we we probably shouldn't have. We should be. We should have talked about that from from jump. Because I think it's uh, it was really uh, an amazing game for those of you who got to watch it. I, I was uh, in Baltimore at RPI Johns Hopkins, so I didn't get to, uh, to watch it in full. But um, but for those of you who got who got to see it, man, it was um, you know for a, a 21-18 game, right? Relatively low scoring. It was back and forth. It had the dramatics, you know, a great player with an all-time great performance playing injured. You have. Uh, turnovers and block punts and the, as soon as the game looks like okay it's a 10-point game Mary Harden Baylor's about to put it away St. John's hops right back in scores and then it gets an onside kick and there's late drama I just thought that game completely and totally lived up to the hype and if we don't get a better game in in these next three here in the semifinals and in the stag bowl we'll look back on that one and say that was what d3 football is all about yeah, let's talk about the playing injured uh, and playing hurt. Jackson Erdman uh, separates his shoulder in the third quarter, still goes 28 for 48 for 418 yards, two touchdowns, uh, three interceptions, two of them in the closing minutes, obviously part of the difference in that game. But, uh, you know, he's the guy who we talked about this on previous podcasts. He's the one guy in this postseason who has really kind of elevated his game consistently across the board, at least at the quarterback position. For sure. There, there are really uh, almost all the Gallardi Trophy candidates, and there were 13 uh, semifinalists. I think like eight of them were in the postseason. Uh, a bunch didn't didn't have really great first. Someone some went out in the first round, uh, you know, the, the running backs and uh, and uh, Kane and Gabley, the, the Denison quarterback, not so hot in, in their playoff performances, their one shot. Um, you saw Brockport get shut down by RPI in round two, and, and that wasn't a, a – a, Standout performance by Joe Germanario. Brock Rutter for, for North Central, good in the first round. Uh, Bethel d- did a number on him in the second round. So I think uh, this performance by Jackson Erdman probably wrapped up the Gallardi Trophy for him. I would think so. Again, assuming like we talked in previous weeks about how many votes were left out. We will talk about each of these games after the break as well. But to touch on Mount Union, for example, D'Angelo Fulford is uh, you know the quarterback for the Purple Raiders. You may have heard of him. 15 for 33 in the playoffs in parts of two games. Uh, he was 15 for 38 in that uh, narrow win against John Carroll back in September. He's averaging just 4.2 yards per attempt against what should be the best teams on Mount Union's schedule. And to me, that's kind of surprising. Well, he is he is coming off an injury, but it, it's funny you mentioned that because I got to wondering while driving back from Baltimore yesterday whether uh, David Tamaro, the Johns Hopkins quarterback, is the best quarterback still active in the postseason. You got Jace Hammock and you have Cole Wilbur 
for uh, for UW Whitewater and all those guys are are good players, but not necessarily focal points of their teams or their offense. Now, Fulford uh, has got the hardware and he had the, the led the comeback last year down 25 at UW Oshkosh in the semifinal round. So he's still the, the most accomplished active quarterback. And if you made me choose, what do you mean choose? We don't understand which guy is is the best active quarterback. I, I'd, I'd say him, but I. I would not be surprised if we see something reminiscent of when Kevin Burke and Wesley's Joe Callahan went head-to-head, score for score. You know, Tamaro and, and Fulford don't take the field against one another, but they have the ability, if they both raise their level of play on, on Saturday, to make this one of the games we remember. I mean, it re- there really are a few semifinal games that stand out in in, in my head. and you know, One of them is... Uh, Mountain Union and North Central when Kevin Burke throws a late touchdown pass in the snow mm-hmm. in a 41-40 game. There's the one the year before that in 2012 where Mountain Union scores a couple uh, late, you know, they score with five seconds left and uh, put a little distance between them and Mary Harden-Baylor. But Mary Harden-Baylor was winning in alliance 28-14 in the second half and Kevin Burke leads this great comeback. And I'm sure there are others that, that we could think of in the semifinal round, but oh, yeah. this is really when not stars are made because by this point in the year, they're already stars, but, but, you can go down in D3 history, I, I think, with games like this. And and uh, David Tamaro has as much a chance to do it as D'Angelo Fulford does. We talk about great semifinal games. You could basically include all of the Mary Harden-Baylor Mount Union games. Yeah, they really haven't played a, a bad matchup. And if we get another one in Shenandoah, that will be a new twist to it because uh, the teams have met in Texas once before, but they it, that wasn't Mount Union's best team. In fact, that was probably one of the the – the weakest Mountain Union teams of the past 20 years. And uh, it was still a 14-12 game down in Texas. So if you get this Mountain Union team and this Mary Harden-Baylor team in the Stag Bowl, it may be another epic game. But you, you, Mary Harden-Baylor looked a little vulnerable on, on Saturday, and I think part of it was because St. John's was such a good team this season. And so now you've got Whitewater. You know, we've we've been over this enough times now to, to say, okay, fine, they're back, but – they, they're playing the exact brand of, of whitewater football that got them to the stag bowl in previous years where they're able to just play smothering defense. They can run the ball and then they've got a quarterback that could do enough. Uh, they've got skill kids that could do enough. You know, they're, they're not going to line up with the same kind of athletes that Mount union is, is going to line up with across the board, but they they've got enough inside um, on the lines. They, they've got enough speed on defense to, to hang with Mary Harden Baylor. And so that's really the, the, if Mary Harden Baylor and St. John's was the game last week, uh, Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater is the game this week. We'll uh, talk about Whitewater then now, and we'll circle back to uh, Johns Hopkins in just a minute. Uh, Cole Wilbur, or for that matter, Whitewater, all they needed to do throwing the ball on Saturday was complete one pass out of, out of nine attempts, one for nine uh, for eight yards. It was uh, pounding the rock. The uh, now the two-headed monster of Alex Pete and Ronnie Ponick. Pete, 24 for 123 in a score. Ponick, 21 for 117 in two scores. Obviously, weather plays a part in that, but uh, it's it's kind of comforting, for lack of a better term, to see Whitewater able to do this and do this with more than one guy now on a consistent basis over the the, the especially the latter portion of this season. Yeah, and that stat probably is affected or reflecting um, the way that game went because Whitewater got out to a 23-0 lead in the second quarter of that game. And it was really a wacky game. And I, I guess we'll talk about it later in the podcast. But I think they didn't need to throw the ball a lot once they had that lead. And they were, they were trying to nurse it a bit. And um, and they were able to do that, uh, even though Bethel put together a couple of touchdown drives before the half to make that game more interesting. It's probably not a performance they want to have to duplicate this week, right? Another one, one for nine. Uh, outing from their quarterback they're going to have to mix it up a little more to move the ball down the field against Mary Harden Baylor although that defense hasn't given up much uh, all year through the air it's been the number one passing efficiency defense in the country weather should be better this week Keith you were at the Johns Hopkins RPI game I'm going to lean on you for the uh, the one big storyline from Johns Hopkins we should cover here in the first part of the show well the real standout thing from from this game is just how prolific the Johns Hopkins offense was you go back to round two, the the huge upset against Frostburg, the 58-27 win. All we talked about was Tyler Messenger. He was hurt early in the game on Saturday, although we didn't we didn't know it at the time. So Stuart Walters, you may remember him from years past, 
he's back and he was back in a big way on Saturday. Uh, in, in, in he's a 5'11, 215 pound running back. So once they got him going, he he got a he had a uh, touchdown run right up the gut uh, for 52 yards early in that game. But then they were able to get him on bubble screens. They were able to um, run you know more traditional running back screens, get the ball in his hands pretty much everywhere and anywhere up the middle, off tackle, stretch, um, read option, and then. They had Hogan Irwin, another kind of more shifty back, uh, come in and get some carries. And then David Tamaro. Uh, if we haven't talked about him enough or we don't talk about him enough in this podcast, those of you who are going to be watching Mountain Union and Johns Hopkins on Saturday, you'll get familiar with him. Guy's got a rocket arm. Um, and then he can scramble, make plays. And then also he can run the read option. So I, I thought the big takeaway was just how prolific the Johns Hopkins offense was. We, we know they can throw the ball They've for years have spread it out and been creative on offense. They were a one of the best teams at adapting the uh, you know the Oregon stuff um, early on, and uh, now, you know now that's kind of a staple for every offense. But um, you'll you'll see on Saturday, I think a a really uh, really exciting offense, and they that's what happened uh, against RPI. They they didn't generate any turnovers, and that was sort of a back and forth game early in the first half. Um, but then they put together when when RPI made it close, they they there was a point where it was 24-14. Johns Hopkins was able to just kind of methodically march down the field. And RPI, this great defense that had shut down Brockport, another high-powered offense the week before, had shut down some some teams during the season and played these great close games. You know, the 10-9 game against Ithaca really stood out. Hopkins was able to just move the ball at will. If you watched our post-game coverage of the Johns Hopkins RPI game, you got a lot of Johns Hopkins interviews. Let's hear uh, RPI talk about, well, talk about Johns Hopkins. We knew that they would take shots. Uh, we knew that they had a high advantage on the outside with a couple of our guys. But that's nothing different than we've seen all year long from our team. You know, uh, We've got a, a five six corner that, that, that plays about 6'3 out there. Oh, yeah. And um, he's uh, I mean, he, there's no one better than we want to, to have out there. Uh, and, and they made plays. Uh, and I think that's that, that's the bottom line. Their their quarterback, you know, he was he was slippery, and he could run the football. He could throw it. Uh, we knew that the the running back. We knew he was very good, very dynamic. Uh, he outran some angles uh, that we took, and um, you know, we knew they were exactly who we thought they 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 would be. Uh, you know, everything from uh, you know throwing football, running it, the tempo, all of that stuff. Um, you know, that's a that's a very good football team and probably the best team that we faced all season long. The thing that jumps off the stat sheet from the Johns Hopkins RPI game is is the rushing disparity, not just the 237 yards for the Blue Jays to 42 for the engineers, but 6.2 yards per carry for Johns Hopkins, 1.8 for RPI. And, you know, RPI did fall behind in that game and, and, and didn't stick to the run as much. You know, they only had 24 attempts, but there was nothing doing it. And that's, that's a big credit to the Johns Hopkins defense. They're, eight, they're a 3-4, so it's their front. I guess it's still a front seven. You're right. But I'm all, I'm all trying to do the math and be different, and it's the same darn math. I thought they were great up front. They didn't give RPI any room to run. It made them one-dimensional. And if they're able to limit Mountain Union's running game, you don't imagine that, that, that it would get shut down. But if they're able to limit it on Saturday, um, you know, that, that can help them make it competitive. And this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the 2018 Gilardi Trophy. Voting ends Monday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. That's voting not only for the 40 members of the panel, but also the cumulative fan vote. And the four finalists will be revealed on streaming video this Thursday afternoon, December 6th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Frank Rossi and I will host this year's reveal show. You know, since the folks in Texas don't want to host the whole awards show in conjunction with their stag bowl. But uh, those votes, your fan votes, and the 40 ballots, including like mine and Keith's, will determine who gets the award for the top all-around student-athlete in Division III football. You can find out who the final four will be on Thursday and only on D3Football.com. And it's time for game balls. And Keith, uh, my game ball is going to go to Josh Petroselli. He had 35 carries for 219 yards and three touchdowns for Mount Union in the 38-10 win over Muhlenberg. He ran the offense. I mean, literally ran the offense, took the snaps for more than one possession. And frankly, he made it look easy when he was out there, especially when he was out there taking snaps. I know, Keith, you're a stickler for proper use of the term wildcat. And while this is not my 
strength. I don't believe this was an unbalanced line look. Just a straight put the running back in the backfield and snap on the ball scenario. That didn't last long at first. He filled in when D'Angelo Fulford had to leave the game to replace a contact lens, and he handled that whole drive, ended up in the end zone. Backup Jake Keeney checked into the game, and in fact, he was called back to the sidelines. Petroselli ran that drive, uh, and it was just crazy easy. Even on that first drive, he completed a little shovel pass to Justin Hill. Great performance on a day in which wide receiver Jared Ruth was out of the lineup, and Fulford didn't really have a great game. I'm so proud of you for remembering that wildcat thing. Hey, man, you, I, I try to learn things. I'm not unteachable. Good. Well, and hopefully our uh, our listeners learn as well. Uh, for my game ball, there were a lot of quarterfinalists chasing my heart. Mountain Union cornerback Lewis Berry had another interception return for a touchdown. That's his sixth score of the year, and I believe his fourth in the past few weeks since week 11. Uh, UW-Whitewater intercepted Bethel four times. But I think I have to go with Mary Harden-Baylor cornerback Jefferson Fritz. His hit two interceptions, including a game clincher in the end zone to help preserve the crew's three-point lead against St. John's, gave Mary Harden-Baylor nine picks in three playoff games. And if there's anyone who loves picks more than I do, we have yet to meet. Back to our swing, our tour through the quarterfinal games. I really thought for a long time in this Mountain Union-Muhlenberg game that we were going to be talking about at the final buzzer. Buzzer? (laughs) Horn? Whatever? Gun? At the end of the game, uh, how close it was and how Muhlenberg kept it close and played it well. And then, you know, kind of like Mountain Union does... They kind of uh, imposed their will over the course of the past, uh, the course of the final quarter. But even so, you know, they go from 24 to 10, which is a reasonable game. That might be a game where we were would talk about these sorts of things, like we talk about 19 to 7, right? Uh, instead, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of short drives, a 38-yard drive, a four-yard drive, two Petroselli touchdowns, and it's 38-10. And from the if you're looking at this from the outside, it maybe looks a little bit low scoring for Mountain Union, but it doesn't look particularly different. Than what, uh, than what you might expect. Well, I mean, how good is Mount Union that a 38-10 win, or even if it would have been a 24-10 win, a two-touchdown advantage that that people wonder or say, oh, they did they struggle that day? Were they were they a little off? Was Muhlenberg just that good this year? Like that, those are legitimate discussion points from Saturday uh, in person and on Twitter. And I think a lot of us were surprised to see 14-7 at the half. People were surprised to see Muhlenberg score first in that game mm-hmm. uh, and have the two early turnovers. But, you know, it's just hard, it's just hard to sustain that against Mountain Union over the course of, of uh, a full game. And, look, the, the numbers were ugly. Not ugly, but not great. Ugly, I'm looking at 5 of 14 on third down, uh, which is not good. 322 yards of total offense, which is eh. You know, 69 yards of, of passing for Mountain Union, which is super subpar. But when you're able to, um, to to rush for 253 yards and do the things they were able to do with with Petroselli, as you mentioned, the the passing number uh, doesn't concern me as much because they were trying to compensate, obviously, for uh, for for some situations at quarterback. But I think the takeaway from this really has to be, and this is maybe my bias, just showing through. <laughs> This what? defense is super good. So it if they if they struggle on certain days or or if the quarterback is is trying to play through an injury or if one of the great super talented wide receivers can't go and they don't have their full arsenal uh in, in a playoff game against a very good defensive team, you know, Muhlenberg held uh, Randolph Macon to basically 100 yards the week before in, in the round 2 playoff game. Mm-hmm. Muhlenberg wasn't able to get anything going offensively and the times they set themselves up with opportunities with turnovers with drives in into the red zone, the Mountain Union defense toughened up. There was a a, a, a early fourth quarter drive at the point where it was at that point it was 24-7. Muhlenberg gets to the 5-yard line and and if they can punch it in there it's a 24-14 game and they may be able to to make it interesting at the end. Instead, they go backwards from that five-yard line, end up kicking a uh, a 36-yard field goal. And at that point, to me, I I felt like the game's over. The 24-10 with 11 minutes to go. Mm-hmm. And if Muhlenberg's going to get to the five-yard line and and had not, not been able to move the ball all day and, and can't punch it in there, you know, I, I didn't have any confidence in, in them being able to come back at that point. Yeah, totally understood. Uh, some of the uh, numbers that support that defense for uh, Mount Union, Muhlenberg, 6 of 30 passing, picked off three times, 89 yards through the air, 63 yards on the ground, 
on 40 attempts. And that's, you know, it, it makes that kind of takes the fact that the game was close for a long time and really kind of dispels that, right? I mean, even though Muhlenberg was in the game on the scoreboard, they were really having trouble moving the ball other than a couple of drives. Yeah, I mean, 6 of 19 on third down and then 0 of 3 on fourth down and then 1.6 yards per carry, too, as well. You know what it reminds you of or, or reminds me of? A, a UW-Whitewater game where the scoreboard, it kind of looks close, but the other team, there's no, you know, 20 points is, is plenty, right? 24-10, plenty because the other team's not going to score that much on a great defense. And I think for all the Mount Union offensive talent, and especially um, the, the skill kids, we spent so much time on them this season, rightfully so, that defense is, um, is really good. And I think for the next two weeks, assuming they uh, they play for two more weeks, you know, we're, we're going to have to spend a little more time talking about the the talent on that side of the ball because they're 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 right. They can they have the ability to carry them if a game gets ugly. And, and if you go back to last year's Stag Bowl, remember that game got ugly for both teams. And uh, and Mary Harden, Baylor and Mountain Union defense had to carry uh, the teams all the all the way to the national championship. We would love to write more about that defense. Let's talk about the other game that is very similar and surprisingly, no, I'm sorry, what's the opposite? Not surprisingly at all is the fact that it's the UW-Whitewater-Bethel game. And uh, similarly, you know, defensive dominance for Whitewater, just like we talked about the uh, Whitewater, or the dominance for the uh, Purple Raider defense. Uh, Bethel on the afternoon, 14-29 passing. Uh, the Warhawks picked off Jaron Rosti four times. Uh, and you know, even though, like we said before, Whitewater didn't have a great day throwing the ball. Maybe that sounds familiar. Uh, Whitewater was able to just run, 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 and uh, kind of just run the game out. Well, yeah, that that big lead that they that they built enabled them to to buckle down and play that style, and, and that's the style they'd prefer anyway. But I think the way to view this game, if if you had to look at it, instead of if, if you're going to call up the box score, instead of going to the traditional box, go two tabs over to the drive summary because that's that kind of shows you how when this game got interesting, right? Starts off with a couple punts, and then Whitewater kicks a field goal to take an early lead, and then Bethel uh, interception. Whitewater turns it into a four play touchdown drive. Bethel another interception. Whitewater turns it into a one play twenty seven yard touchdown drive. Bethel goes backwards on their next. Uh, possession goes 16 yards backwards. Whitewater turns it into another four play touchdown drive. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're up huge and, and Bethel then all of a sudden to, you know, quickly gets back into this game in the second quarter with two touchdown drives sandwiched around a, uh, a, a four and out for Whitewater. So this game, it did have the back and forth, but then when it got into the second half and Whitewater just decided Hey, we're going to play great defense and protect this lead. They were able to do that. And uh, when your team is that good at two fundamental things, right, right, limiting the other team's ability to move the ball and score quickly and to, to milk that clock and run the ball and, and add points to the lead, which both Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater were able to do on Saturday when, when their games got rough, um, I think it's what makes these two teams amazing and what makes this coming Saturday's game um, just kind of mind-blowing in the sense that I have no idea who's going to win, right? The two, what's the, what's the phrase, immovable force, whatever, (laughs) you know, somebody out there knows it, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like there's two, there's two, Yes. if they both play great defense against the run or, and they both run the ball great and don't really care to, to, to air it out unless they have to, What's going to happen on Saturday? Well, then you'll have the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. Thank you. One of the, you mentioned the drive summary tab, and this is just me, you know, how I use the website. Um, I love to, especially in situations like this where I'm doing the same thing. I'm kind of running down the game and seeing what happened. Uh, you can hit, uh, you can sort it, it. The default sort is that it goes chronological, right? You get one team's first drive and then the other team's first drive, et cetera, et cetera. You can click this little tab uh, or a link at the top of the tab that says uh, team, sort by team. So now I'm looking at all the Bethel drives, 
on one screen. And one of the other things that pops out at me, in addition to the stuff you talked about, uh, punt, punt, interception, interception, downs, punt, uh, is the fact that Bethel only had two drives of more than six plays all day. Six is not a very high number to, uh, you know, to be uh, the kind of the the barrier or the mark to beat. Uh, on a day they had uh, twelve first downs. That uh, is kind of uh, that's kind of how it went. Well, one you just blew my mind. I did not know you could do that. That you could sort by Bethel, um, and then I or you know sort by team rather than every other drive. Uh, so yeah, that's nice to learn. Anyone who's played defense, right? For for if you're out there listening, tell me if I'm wrong about this. Any defensive coach will tell you something to this effect: it takes 25 yard plays to get down the field, but you you give up a big play, you can you know lose the game in an instant. Whatever. I remember uh, I, we had a coach. Uh, our Head coach was the defensive coordinator who was the defensive backs coach. So I spent a lot of time with this guy. Um, and his thing was, look, they, they complete a pass in front of you. Fine. Just rally, make the tackle, come up, whatever. Just don't miss a tackle. And he was big on cornerbacks and safeties being able to tackle because he would say this all the time. You need 25 yard plays to get down the field. I mean, assuming they start on a zero yard line, but whatever. <laughs> Bethel couldn't string drives together on, on Saturday. And, that's that is probably a credit to to Whitewater's defense. And again, as we project this forward, how is Mary Harden Baylor going to string drives together? They they've been more diverse offensively this season than they've been in some past seasons. Mm-hmm. So maybe they'll be able to throw the ball, and maybe that's where Whitewater's weaknesses in, in the secondary. I, I certainly think that's how Mountain Union's best chance to move the ball against Johns Hopkins is uh, on the outside. But, we, but we'll see if if teams can string drives together or if they're going to have to rely on big plays or special teams, you know, turnovers, whatever, the things that that have, have gotten these teams here on Saturday. Because as as was evident with Bethel, it's going to be hard to, to string together a, a long drive over and over and over again to get three, four touchdowns on the board against a defense as talented as Whitewater's. Moving on to oh let's see let's pick the let's go back to the Johns Hopkins RPI game for a second since uh, I knew we had three people there I watched about maybe six or seven plays of this game once it became clear that I didn't need to be the person who was updating the clock on the scoreboard I turned my early attention full time to uh, to Mount Union and Muhlenberg so uh, tell us a little bit more about this football game. Well, first of all, I think that was the the right choice. It was also not the least exciting game of the day, but you know, once those one o'clock games started, Whitewater, Bethel, and St. John's, Mary Harden, Baylor, you could be forgiven for for wanting to, to tune over to one of those. But it was actually a a fairly back and forth game. RPI uh, represented itself well, and uh, basically, you know, the teams traded scores in the first quarter, um, and there was a point in the second where RPI drove pretty deep. Into uh, into Hopkins territory, went for it on on uh, fourth down and and did not convert. And then Hopkins was able to to stick a field goal on the board right before the end of the half. So they they went in seventeen seven. But it got it got interesting again when when RPI came out. They they had taken over. Uh, I think Hopkins adds another uh, touchdown to start the second half. So thirteen play drive to start the second half, and RPI is in trouble at this point. Right, it's twenty four seven. And the, the the game is about to get away from them, and uh, Hopkins has a short drive, short punt, RPI two plays. Uh, uh, they basically throw like a not a not a fade, but a, um, kind of an I, I like it was more like an arrow route. But basically, the guy's running out toward the sideline. Marinopolis just floats it over there. Boom! They pick up a bunch of yards. Then the next play, they come with an end around, and they're in the end zone. It's twenty four fourteen, and suddenly it's an interesting game again, right? And then Hopkins embarks on another long touchdown drive, 10 plays, 64 yards, scores a touchdown, and basically establishes that no matter how many times RPI comes back, uh, Hopkins is going to be able to, to move the ball offensively. So they, in the complete opposite mold of Bethel, if I use this little sort trick that you just taught me, <laughs> uh, Hopkins had a 14-play 65-yard touchdown drive. They had a 13-play, 78-yard touchdown drive. They had a 10-play, 64-yard touchdown drive. A 9-play, 80-yard touchdown drive. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. 
you're going for many plays and a lot of yards. Right. They're able to sustain drives, um, not just converting on, on third downs, but I thought what was interesting about Hopkins was just the way they attack all parts of the field. Like they would run up the middle, they would bubble screen. So then now defensively, right. You got, you got to be stout up front. Then you have to have quick, quick uh, guys on the perimeter, get off blocks and make tackles. And then they come back and, and read option. Um, and so now that your, your defenders are already like, you know, heads are spinning because you, you just ran one up the gut and then you threw one to the outside. A lot of their passes too, because Tamara has such a strong arm, a lot of their passes are to the sideline rather than throwing over the middle. So I feel like they make you defend the, the whole field. And from Mount Union, certainly they'll have the athletes defensively to, to, to go up against Johns Hopkins, but they're going to have to be play disciplined, smart football too, because Hopkins will get rolling. They can do it with, with tempo, uh, or they can they can um, you know slow it down and be methodical. I, I think unless it's just a total mismatch up front, I, I think they they, they are going to have a chance to score some points on Mount Union and make it interesting. One name you haven't mentioned, you talk about a bunch of guys who carried the ball or who moved the offense for the Blue Jays. We did not talk about Tyler Messenger, who had the big breakout game in the uh, second round game against Frostburg State. Oh, that must have been when you were daydreaming about brisket because I did mention that he um, brisket. he went out early. He went out early in the game, um, and I don't believe we uh, figured out exactly wh- why. Um, but he, I think he hurt himself in some way. Uh, he had two carries for three yards. So Walters sixteen for one fifteen. Tamaro uh, ten for eighty one. Hogan Irwin seven for thirty five. They did during the course of the season mix it up with a couple of backs anyway, but it was often. Uh, Walters and Messenger, and um, in this case, really, they had four ball carriers that that you have to worry about. And I think against RPI, and now Hopkins has now played RPI, Frostburg, and MIT in the postseason. I don't, I don't know if running lanes are are going to be quite as wide open against Mountain Union, but but I feel like if I was Hopkins, if I hadn't played that Frostburg game, I would I would be a little less encouraged, a little more worried about maybe we won't be able to execute our whole entire offense up at Mountain Union. But I think having put 58 on Frostburg and and you scored 37 against RPI, a team that defensively had been great all season, I think they've got to be confident going up to Mountain Union that they can score a little bit. Now, you're never confident going to Mountain Union that you're going to win. But they can play loose. They can do what they do. And and if they – the way Muhlenberg – did on on Saturday where they hang in the game you get get through the first 20 minutes where uh, and this is something that Greg Thomas pointed out you know a lot of times teams just get blown completely out of the water I don't think that's going to be a factor for Johns Hopkins because they've they've played Mountain Union before because of the way Jim Margraff coaches they should be loose and because they they have the talent to to go against them I think the big thing is uh, is that the Johns Hopkins defense going to be able to stop the Mountain Union offense assuming that offense is at full strength Somewhere back there, you mentioned running lanes, and uh, David Tamaro talked about that with Frank and Greg in our postgame show. Yeah, so when I was watching, I noticed they play a lot of like soft zone. You know, the backers do a good job getting in their drops, getting in their zones. So I kind of thought that coming into the game, if my first couple progression reads weren't there, I wouldn't be able to kind of attack it on the ground. And so I came in, I was doing that a little bit early, and so I kind of thought, hey, you know, this is something I can do today. And uh, that's kind of where it led to there. There's a lot more from David Tamaro. There's more from Luke McFadden, et cetera, et cetera, on our Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash d3football, and uh, you might have to click on the videos tab, but you find the whole post-game coverage kind of super cut into uh, one long interview set. Do you guys know how to post videos to Facebook? Thanks again to Frank and Greg and to Keith for uh, going up or down to Baltimore, depending on where you're coming from. Almost everybody is going down when you're talking about traveling to Belton, Texas. This past week, of course, it was the folks from Collegeville, Minnesota, St. John's in the the 21-18 win for Mary Harden-Baylor. We've talked about this a little bit, Keith. What I want to talk about uh, now, which we uh, only kind of really touched on a little bit, is something we've talked about quite a bit previously, the health of Jace Hammock. Hammock looked pretty good on Saturday, uh, you know, considering he... uh, was needed for the whole game uh the only thing is he got kind of shaken up at the end and he came back out in order to uh i think run the kneel down or maybe do a handoff in order to run out the clock so once again 
we, we have questions on Jace Hammock's health coming into uh, coming into a playoff game where I, otherwise he had kind of answered the the stuff about his shoulder, I think, just by the way he played on Saturday. Yeah, he was 15 of 28, 235 yards. He hit the 51-yard touchdown pass to C.J. Josie. He had two touchdown passes and no interceptions, which obviously is huge when you compare that to the three that, uh, that Jackson Erdman threw. The health, I think, at this point of the season, and this is such a coaching cliche, but um, but it's also one rooted in, in some truth, is that at this point of the year, everybody's banged up, and some more than others, obviously, but you're going to imagine the the coaches dial back on uh, on on Jay Samick this week, and uh, hopefully they have him him ready to go because he's emerged as the guy. They don't have Luke Corman to to lean on uh, anymore. If, if things were to go wrong, they do have another option, of course, in in Denarian Thomas. But the offense completely changes, uh, or we address this a little bit after the Barry game. But we the offense is not nearly the same offense with him and it also uh it it limits whether you can use him elsewhere so i think uh you know you want it you you may see a game on saturday if the uh, quarterback's not 100 percent and where both sides are trying to buckle down run the ball punt play defense field position game because both teams are comfortable doing that the things that worked for st john's on saturday you know, Erdman, uh, they talk about it in the postgame show. Mary Harden Baylor does impress with how, he, you know, he just has no problem throwing into tight coverage. It worked out quite a bit for him other than uh, down the stretch. In fact, in the 28 for 48, I saw a couple of big drops, you know, times where he delivered great balls right into receivers hands and they were not able to hang on to it. But Will Galach had a great game on Saturday in terms of his eight catches for 150 yards and two touchdowns. Adam Essler, 11 for 121. Joey Eckhoff, four for 101. You see, these are the things, though. Erdman, Cole Wilbur, not the same type of quarterback. That is not something that uh, Wilbur is and the and the Whitewater offense is necessarily going to be able to do against Mary Harden Baylor. But again, they, they that Whitewater offense won't necessarily try to establish that. You'll see them try to get uh, both Ronnie Ponick and Alex P going. Um, certainly, they'll they'll mix in some stuff. But Whitewater is more like um, those St. Thomas teams when they were really good too, where they give you a lot of formations. You'll sometimes see double tight. Um, then you'll see them bring in. Uh, although I, I believe he was hurt on Saturday, they'll bring in Ryan Wisniewski, uh, wide receiver, to take some direct snaps. So they give it. They'll give the defense a lot to worry about, but it won't necessarily be Cole Wilbur empty backfield trying to trying to gun it down the field you know he can throw the ball and he, he's got some nice touch but but there'll be a lot in the offense even if it's uh geared toward just trying to run the ball yeah i'm i was just i i'm sorry i was chuckling while you were saying that because i was trying to picture whitewater with empty backfield and that was uh that was amusing to me that's not uh that's not a look we usually see i mean although it's it's, it's in the arsenal Everything's got to be in the arsenal at this point in the season, right? So let's. Um, we have. Uh, we we talked about one thing, and we were kind of lending ourselves, tending towards another. But we've got some great Twitter questions this week. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now's the time on the podcast where we go to Twitter, and we've got uh, pops of one who is T Mills asking, uh, will UW-Whitewater, Mary Harden-Baylor benefit more from playing each other to get ready for Mount, or will a physical game wear them down for the Stag Bowl six days later? Great question. I don't know the answer. I don't have a great answer. Keith has a great answer. Thanks for selling it highly, whatever the opposite of short is, selling it long. Um, I, I, I tend to think they benefit more from, from playing one another um, and if you look at the road, either either one, well, really for Mary Harden Baylor, if they make it to the Stag Bowl, they will have had to go through Harden Simmons, which was ranked number seven going into the postseason. Two rounds later, to they will have played number three, St. John's, and then number five, Whitewater. Three great programs to, to get to the, the right to play Mountain Union. So if for whatever reason Mary Harden Baylor wins the national championship, they will have certainly done it convincingly. And and had a tougher road than anyone else, and I think, you know, you heard them talk in in the post game about having this test against St. John's. I feel like they benefit from it, um, but it's a certainly a, a valid 
valid uh, question whether having to play Whitewater physically could could beat them up and then having to turn around and play on a Friday night instead of a Saturday, whether that would would affect them. Mary Harden-Baylor in that scenario, right, where Mary Harden-Baylor is the one that advances, they've at least got the opportunity to not have to travel. They don't have to travel this weekend, and they just have a bus ride the next weekend. I certainly think that that's probably going to be a little bit more of a factor. I wondered, for example, about Erdman getting on a plane, you know, even though, you know, he's a, a guy who's not playing next week, getting on a plane with a, a separated shoulder. And that's a really uncomfortable ride, even in a charter plane where you don't have to, uh, you know, where you don't have to go through sec- uh, the big, long security lines and, and all that. You make a great point about Mary Harden Baylor not having to get on a plane. You know, um, they will they will travel, I guess, to the Houston area from from the middle of Texas or I don't know if they call it central Texas out there, probably. Mm-hmm. Um you know, having to get on a plane, you're right, if you're injured is certainly no fun. But I think the the bigger part is the time it takes out of out of one of your major days of the week, whether it's Thursday that you travel or a stag bowl week, it would be Wednesday or even Tuesday. Um, it, it's just a, it's just a day where the practice you get in that day, probably not a very good practice, not hitting at this point in the season anyway, but um you're not installing a lot of new stuff, maybe digging up some some old plays that worked against other people that you think might work against your stag bowl opponent. But I, I do like the idea that that if if it's Mary Harden Baylor not having to travel uh, or not having to get on a plane is a big deal. If it's Whitewater, though, and if we have another Mountain Union Whitewater stag bowl, which um, if some people just threw their podcasting device out the window right now, I'm sorry. Um <laughs> I, you know, both teams will have to travel to Texas and it'll be a sort of an odd situation because I think uh, a lot of folks down there are expecting to see Mary Harden Baylor in that game. Second Twitter question. This one comes from Jake McGinnis, who is at Jake McGinnis one asking, what are y'all's thoughts on the injuries at this point of the season impacting the game prep during the week, i.e. Jace's shoulder and ankle hashtag D three FB hashtag Gokru. No, I'm sure that means go crew. I'm joking. Okay. So, we were just talking about that a little bit, right? Uh, you know, we, we are already in a situation where you can kind of take it easy on guys. You know, have, Jace doesn't have to throw this week, right? He just has to get healthy. He just has to, you know, maybe stand there and watch what the scout team is doing, watch a ton of film, stuff like that. I just said film. I'm sorry. I know that uh, nobody actually laces up, a uh, threads the film through a film projector anymore. I'm just going to stop. I think the the... Last couple of podcasts, the interview with Gary Foshing from St. John's and the one before that with Jim Margraff from Johns Hopkins are actually pretty instructive here because they talk about how, as you get this point in the season, you know, a 15-week grind, there's nobody in sports that that does this. And then, you you, you know, you, you tack camp on the so before that. So at this point, as, as Gary Foshing said, you're not installing a lot of new stuff. Um, Margraf had said how, you know, you've, you, once you've been through this a few times, you, you figure out how to work the weeks, the weeks where you have to travel or the weeks where you have that Thanksgiving break in there so that you get your good work in early. I think at this point, a lot of the, the, the stuff is mental anyway, right? you the, the coaches will, you win Saturday, you take Saturday off, they'll game plan hard Sunday the players will usually have Sunday off or they'll come in and, you know, weight lift or do film or whatever. And then Monday you're back in and Monday's like the big, um, again, not install day, but you may, you may do tendencies. You may do, um, you know, certain packages that you want to add in there. But when you're going out to the practice field at this point in the year, basically the stuff you want to see is you're refining all the things you already do, but you, you know, you want to do like a, like a, like a blitz period or something like that, where um, the quarterback gets to see, the, what the other team likes to do in certain situations. So Hammock would only have to stand out there for that. He doesn't have to yeah. move around or whatever. You just have to kind of be able to visualize, okay, they like to come, they like to send the, you know, the corner and the wheel linebacker, whatever, you know, whatever it is. I think a lot of it at this point in the year is, is, is mental. Anyway, the, um, after daylight savings, you don't have a lot of time in the afternoon to go practice. And then you're talking about whitewater and, uh, and mountain union. Those teams don't want to be outside all that long anyway. So I, I think practice at this point in the year is, is I can't put a percentage on it, but it's more than half mental. All right. Well, let's take one more 
Twitter question from at uh, SJU Johnny. I think we figure out who he follows. It's Brad Cronin who asks, with the mistakes St. John's made while outgaining Mary Harden Baylor by 150 yards and only losing by three, is St. John's back as a serious contender next season and in the years ahead? Uh, before uh, I let uh, Keith say something, I'll say this, that uh, on Saturday afternoon in my mailbox, in my, well, my inbox, my email, you know what I mean. I got an email from... Uh, one of the guys I go to church with. I, I've mentioned that there's lots of Tommies and lots of Johnnies kind of all over the place around here. And uh, this email basically says, it says, Johnnies were the better team and would beat Mary Harden Baylor eight out of 10 times. Too bad they had a couple of very bad self-imposed breaks. Uh, and I responded uh, thusly. Uh, I watched a lot of the game and part of it is just that really good teams force mistakes, sometimes even un- forcing unforced ones because those teams try to force you to do things differently. That's kind of my take on that. Even, you know, sometimes even an unforced error can still be a forced error if you are playing or trying to uh, play at a higher pace or trying to think at a higher tempo because the tempo of the game and the quality of the opponent is forcing you to do so. Yeah, you use the word forced a lot there, so... Use the false loop. Uh, it threw me off, but I think your point is, is generally correct. I don't. I, I think eight out of ten is delusional. You know, I know that that St. John's had um, a nice yardage total on Saturday, and uh, but Mary Harden Baylor led, you know, start to finish. So St. John's was, was playing catch up the entire time, and and I don't. As much as they made that game interesting in the end, you also need things like an onside kick to go your way. You need them to to blow a, a punt coverage so you can block a punt um, to get back into the game. So I, I think there were things. Certainly that both teams did that that um, were good and, and certainly things that both teams did that they they weren't proud of. And your general point is right, that when you play another good team that is disciplined, that that, uh, you know, savvy and makes plays and is just has a, a raw talent, it's going to force you into some mistakes that you don't make against other teams to address the other part of the question, whether St. John's is back next year. I think as long as you have Jackson Erdman, you, you think they, they're going to be back in a place in a, in a similar place you're obviously going to lose some other key guys most good teams have a have a nice big senior class but i but i think the biggest thing for the johnnies is the same thing that it's been for the past few years now is uh getting out of the mayak right saint saint thomas will likely be back in some form or fashion bethel uh has jaron rossi and uh and, and a pretty talented roster coming back as well so now you got those teams to worry about and, and St. John's has got to be one of the two Mayak teams that gets in the playoffs, right? Three is generally uh, almost impossible. So you got to be one of those two to get in and then you, you have a shot. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. So while we're on St. John's, I was driving, I was driving and thinking about Where St. John's finishes in the poll, and, and we can't know that now, but I, I can't imagine it's lower than five based on how well they played Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday. Basically, three point game on a team that was coming off a 66 point win uh, the week before against, against what was a top 25 team coming in. I, I think anything up to two is, is in play for St. John's based on how these next two weeks go. If I had to redo the poll right now, it'd be Mary Harden, Baylor, Mount Union, Whitewater. I think I'd keep St. John's at, at four and uh, and have Johns Hopkins five. I think the scenario that leaves St. John's in the low spot in five is Johns Hopkins playing a really good game against Mount Union. That's enough, I think, to get them into the top four, possibly. When you look at the poll, obviously they beat Frostburg State, and regardless of what people in the Midwest think, I still think Frostburg State is a quality opponent, and they won that game in convincing fashion on the road. To follow that up by playing well and being competitive, if not moving on against Johns Hopkins, or against Mount Union, of course, would uh, would be the scenario. I think that's the low end of the spectrum for St. John's, and I agree. I would certainly consider voting St. John's number two if Mary Harden Baylor then goes on to win the national championship going away. Right, if they're convincing against Whitewater and, and either Mount Union or, or Johns Hopkins. I, I mean, the rest of the top 10, uh, not to belabor the point, but I don't think there were too many top 10 teams outside of the five we just mentioned who 
impressed who, who moved up the ballot in the postseason. I think six in the poll probably has to be Bethel. Uh, you know, whether, however you order the six, uh, whether it's, you know, Bethel ahead of Johns Hopkins or whatever. And then North Central, I think, is right behind um, Bethel because they played that 27-24 game in round two. And then and then you have to figure out what to do with yeah, every, uh, Harden Simmons and Brock, Brockport, Frostburg, John Carroll. And, you know, those teams that played their way up to like RPI, Center. Yeah, I don't know. Randolph Macon doesn't make it up into the top ten. Muhlenberg maybe, um, but the the poll, the exercise beyond the the top six or seven is going to be crazy. Well, it's funny. It's like you just asked me to do that in on the spot on uh, Pod Two Twenty Eight. Our twenty eighteen All Region team is coming out on Tuesday. Uh, we hope we're planning it uh, to be out on Tuesday. Uh, this whole having a, a forty hour a week day job is really cutting into my d3football.com time i've been really accustomed over the course of the last three uh decembers of having uh you know enough time to do this sort of thing but we're we're getting it we're getting there well we touched on it earlier in the pod and maybe this will be on the spot for friday although if i tell you can it will it still count as uh, as on the spot Mm-mm. i'd like i'd like to rank the uh the four quarterbacks still playing well how, how do you feel about Fulford, Fulford, Tamaro, Wilbur, and uh, and Hammock, and, and you, you got you got to factor in now that a, a couple of those guys are, are playing hurt. Well, I'll let you guys know on Pod Two Thirty, uh, Keith. We were talking earlier about the the Guardi Trophy, and uh, that vote uh, that ballot is due in for us on uh, one p.m. on Monday. Also. Uh, we kind of talked about the guy who uh, has really excelled over the course of this postseason, and then you and I had an interesting conversation before this pod started. It is really difficult now having this whole uh, 14 weeks of data in to really justify voting for anybody other than Jackson Erdman. Yeah, he had 418 passing yards against Mary Harden Baylor, number one passing efficiency defense in the country, and they did have the three interceptions. But he also, you know, a valiant effort, whether you call it the Willis Reed factor or whatever, you know, guy playing uh, with a with a hurt shoulder for most of the second half um, does give you like a little bit of, man, I, if I wasn't sure this was the right guy, uh, that game, you know, put it over the edge. Adam Turner made a great point about how St. John's hadn't been this deep into the postseason since 2006. And, and here you have a guy who shows up and, uh, and, and carries them past St. Thomas, past Bethel, and, uh, and, and deep into the postseason. And again, with a different with a different draw, they might still be playing, you know, if they hadn't run into Mary Harden-Baylor in the quarterfinals. So I, I think that's who, who you got to vote for. Um, some of these other guys, first of all, they're always amazing dudes. Like you read their, their bios and they have like 12 community service projects, some on campus, some off campus, some back home. Uh, you know, good good grades or uh, big dreams. Oh, and by the way, they're also awesome at football. So, I mean, there's no bad candidate when it gets to this point when you narrow it down to these uh, 13 semifinalists. We're just spending a lot of time on on guys who have been elite players over the course of the season. So whether it's someone with like sick numbers, like uh, like Hayden Bowserman from Shenandoah, a guy who wasn't in the postseason and didn't have a chance to improve his stock, you're just looking at the, the the crazy numbers from during the season, or whether it's uh, you know someone that that has basically been on the radar since uh, since day one, like Brock Rutter or Joe Germanario, um, or someone who put up crazy numbers like uh, like Lamar Carswell well or uh, Lee Anthony Reesnover. There was a lot of that in, uh, in in figuring out the balloting, and I think actually even if you and I both agree that Erdman is the number one vote, there's a lot of work to do on your ballot because you got to rank them. Uh, all the all the way from thirteen to one. I, I don't I don't know who the other three semifinalists. Are. What are they? What are they? Finalists. I don't know what the other three finalists are going to be. Well, you can find out at four p.m. Eastern time on Thursday on uh, d3football.com. Look at that on our Facebook page. And this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number two hundred twenty nine, season twelve, episode thirty, released on December third, twenty eighteen. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, you know how to do these things. You give us a five-star rating. We love those, whether it's an Apple podcast or a Google podcast or Stitcher or 
you know, other places. That will help football fans find it, and you can uh, leave comments for us on the blog page. We appreciate those. We're glad to participate in that sort of discussion. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at DJMentos.com. The opening theme, by the way, is a track called Power 2, which I had to kind of go back into my hard drive to find when someone asked that on Twitter today. Thanks to our guests, David Tamaro, RPI coach Ralph Isernia, and then everybody who put their uh, post-game news conference stuff online. That was uh, helpful as well. We thank you for all of that to help on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, I don't know if you know this, but we have a Facebook page, and you can follow us there as well. Sorry, you stayed to the end of the podcast this week, and there's no cool bonus anything. Next week, though. I mean, I could go get that trombone. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.